Welcome to the 53rd episode of our podcast series for advisors considering the independent space. Today's episode is how this UBS breakaway team increased their client base by 50%. A conversation with Bryn Talkington and Doug John of Requisite Capital Management. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, and on advisorhub.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other podcast resources. If you're new to the series, I encourage you to visit diamond-consultants.com slash independence101 for the top five episodes that will help you get up to speed on the basics of the independent space, plus links to other episodes you may have missed. And if you're listening to this series on the Apple Podcast app, be sure to leave a star rating and review, as it serves as a guide for us, as well as your colleagues in the wealth management industry who may be searching for valuable content to tune into. You might be surprised to learn that some of the most listened to episodes on this series are not necessarily those featuring industry thought leaders or even top firm leadership. The most popular episodes are often those in which breakaway advisors share the stories of their journeys to independence. That is, where advisors candidly discuss what propelled them to make the leap, why they chose a particular model, platform, or technology, and ultimately, if they had any regrets about leaving the brokerage world behind. What I find most interesting is that while the goals and drivers of each advisor or team are often similar, the paths to get there are unique. My guests on this show are a great example. Both worked at UBS for 15 years, but in different departments and different cities in Texas. Doug John was on the private wealth side of UBS in Dallas, and Bryn Talkington on the asset management side of the firm in Houston. Today, they are managing partners of the billion-and-a-half-dollar RIA firm Requisite Capital Management based in Dallas. How they got together, why they made the leap, and what they found on the other side is a compelling story that they can tell best. So let's get right to it. Bryn and Doug, I've enjoyed talking with you so much offline. I'm excited for you to share your story today, and I thank you for joining me. Oh, well, thank you, Mindy. We're big fans, first of all, of you and all the podcasts that you've done. Our only wish was, I wish you had started this four or five years ago when, you know, when we figured out we really wanted to come to this space. You've provided a lot of transparency of what takes place in, you know, in the independent world. And I wish we would have had the benefit of hearing that back when we were making our decisions. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate that. I want to start at the top. Tell us about Requisite Capital Management, your RIA firm. Sure. Requisite Capital Management, we're a registered investment advisor. We started in June of 2017. Brent and I both left UBS. So as we sit here today, I believe we're in month 27 of the company. And what are your roles in the company? Tell us about how you came together, a little bit about the two of you. Sure. So Brynn and I coincidentally joined UBS back in 2002. She was on the asset management side. I was on the wealth management side. So we crossed paths a lot. You know, For our clients, we used UBS asset management. So we forged a really good relationship. I think the world of Brynn, 
And as we got to know each other kind of later in our careers at UBS, we liked the idea of us partnering together. So we both started this firm together. We both serve as managing partners of the firm. In addition, Brent also wears our chief compliance officer hat, which, as you know, many is certainly important with an RAA. In addition to that, we have four employees and we had a wonderful intern working for us this summer. And Bryn, let me ask you, so tell us a little bit about your target clients, the value proposition that you offer them. Sure. Well, first and foremost, our current client base is we work with wealthy clients and all of our clients are uniquely successful. Typically, those clients and our prospective clients are first-generation entrepreneurs. We are a full-service wealth management firm, and the net worth of the families that we are seeking to bring on, as well as our existing clients, as existing families, you know, have a net worth of around 20 to 100 million. And typically, they don't need their own dedicated family office, but we can get most of those benefits. We can give them most of those benefits of the family office by working with us. I think from our value proposition, I'll actually will let Doug answer that to kind of walk through the four four key areas of that. Oh, sure. So the way we think about this is there's four key things in our value proposition, our investment process and philosophy, technology. We have a real keen focus on estate planning and our fees. So to break those down a little bit from an investment point of view, you know, we, we truly love this business. We look at client allocations from a liquid and an illiquid perspective, so public versus private. We call ourselves evidence-based investors. And what the evidence points to us in the public markets is we, we certainly have embraced more of an index approach to use low-cost, tax-efficient investments to express allocations. We then spend a ton of time on the private side to find things that will complement what we're doing in the public markets. We just have a a philosophy that we do not want our client portfolios to be 100% path dependent on equity prices moving higher and bond yields moving lower. So that's from an investment point of view. I think later on we'll be talking more about technology, but technology is a big deal to us. Um, There is some incredible technology in the wealth management space. We're huge fans of Adapar. And I think that's a key component to our offering. Estate planning, it's just always been something that's uh, been a focal point. We've been so fortunate, especially in earlier years, working on various estate planning strategies and actually seeing how that has really worked on behalf of our clients. So we have a, a tagline that we say asset location is as important as asset allocation. So how we get things structured on the front end can many times be way more important than the actual investments themselves. And then the last thing is just fees. Brent and I both share an opinion that in the wealth management space, I think fees are still pretty high. (laughs) I wish they could stay that way, but I just don't think they're going to. So we have an opinion on where the puck's going with fees. And so we think we got ahead of the curve on fees. And so with the various services and investment approach, along with our fees, we consider that to be our big value prop to our current clients and future clients. And- Bryn, you mentioned family office services. You know, I think that's sort of a big buzzword or catch-all phrase that a lot of advisors use, clients use, and firms use. And certainly, if you're an advisor at UBS or Morgan Stanley or Merrill Lynch, they offer family office services. So what are the different kinds of family office services that you're able to offer your clients, either that you couldn't? in the wirehouse world or just things that are unique to your business in general? Well, I think the two key things is, first of all, at UBS, and this goes for every firm, 
you're only able to advise and articulate and opine on investments that are sitting at that firm. And so to say you're able to offer family office services, that would be limited at a big wirehouse to those assets that sit there. So first and foremost, we are able to advise across clients full wealth, and we're able to report on that. And so I think to Doug's earlier point about one of our value-added proposition is technology. When we are able to populate a full client balance sheet, which, you know, Mindy, by the way, most clients that become new clients of requisite are still doing it on an Excel spreadsheet themselves. And so they haven't been able to aggregate all of those assets they have. And when you're able to do that, when you have a full lens and understanding of all of your assets, whether it's friends and family private deals that you did and you don't keep track of, your real estate, um, all of your different entities that you've structured for estate planning, when you can bring that together holistically, that transparency makes ourselves and our clients make much better decisions. And so ultimately, I think that a family office valuation model is, first of all, being able to see everything and report on that. And then also it's going to go to the investments and the type of investments that we look to show clients is we do spend a lot of time in the private market. And I think that's where when clients have created that wealth, they're not necessarily wanting all of their assets to be tied to the public markets because no one likes to be you know, up 20, down 20, which is just the price of admission for owning equities. But we want to give a more diversified, we'll say family office type model where we can have more private investments that wouldn't necessarily be on the platform of a big firm. Mindy, the one thing I would add to that is we're not locked at a particular custodian. Like we're not, for instance, locked at just UBS. We can go shop things around the marketplace. And that's what a typical family office would do. So that's the kind of things that we like to bring to our clients is go execute wherever we want. That's the freedom you get with being in the independent space. And how is that not drinking from a fire hose? Meaning the marketplace is a big place. So how do you discern which options to shop and get access to what you need for your clients? There's so many different touch points. Service-wise, it would speak to that question. You know, when you think about, for instance, cash rates, like we spend a lot of time thinking about cash rates. We look for very competitive money market rates for cash balances. And you know, I think some custodians have different rates than others, and that it just is what it is. So you need to be able to pivot and you know, ultimately go find other options for clients. If we're doing you know, we've had some success working with a lot of regional banks here in Texas to get different loan structures for our clients for more, uh, call it illiquid assets. The private investments, it's a pretty big catchphrase, you know, alternative investments, what that means. We have a very specific thought process on what it is that we're looking for. But our ability, a lot of times clients will ask us, especially new clients, well, where do you get all your private deal flow? It is all over the place. The second you raise a flag, at your firm and say you're looking for certain things, it'll come your way. Our job is just to sift through it. So it, it is, to your point, it is drinking out of a fire hose, especially in the, the first year of our company. But where we sit now, I think we've got this somewhat digested and we have some really good spots to go execute for our clients on different things that they need. Got it. So for perspective, how much in assets are you managing now? And how has that changed since leaving UBS a little more than two years ago? Well, I'll answer that question from both an asset and from a client standpoint. So we oversee over $1.5 billion of assets. Our regulatory assets under management is $850 million. 
And I think one of the stats we're really proud of is since we started the company, we've added 18 new families as clients who did not know us before we started Requisite. So I want to come back to that, but because the belief for so many wirehouse advisors is that the notion of independence, of gaining more freedom and control is exciting and interesting and intriguing and who wouldn't want those things, but they're terrified at gaining them at the expense of giving up a recognizable big brand name. So I know the answer because I have these conversations with advisors every day, but I'd love to hear your perspective just quickly on what is it that appeal to those 18 families about working with a firm with an unknown name, an unrecognizable name, a non-big brand name like Requisite versus being a client of UBS or Morgan Stanley or Merrill Lynch? What do you think it was that brought them in? So I'd probably answer that question twofold. As far as new clients have come on board, I think that there is a real thirst out there from investors to do things outside of the public markets. So I think our approach to what we're looking for in the private world appeals to a lot of people. We always say it in our meetings, we didn't corner the market on all the investment ideas. And so the idea that we can work with clients, like Bryn said earlier, across their entire balance sheet, I think is really important. I mean, we have clients that come across their own investment opportunities. And what they want to do is be able to bounce those off us sometimes and get our opinions. And we're able to give those opinions at the the big firms. You're not allowed to do it. It's just a fact. So I think being able to give that perspective across the whole balance sheet is really meaningful. And what we're able to deliver from a technology point of view and without a par, I think it's been a really home run, been very well received. That's what I would say as far as new clients are concerned. Advisors know this inherently. When they're looking to make a move, I think they forget it. But at the end of the day, If you're at a wirehouse, the value that's added or not added is by the advisor and their team. That's always been that way. And so I think that when you go back to the roots of why advisors got into the business, people don't get into business because they want to work at X wirehouse or Y wirehouse. They get in the business because they want to serve clients and raise assets and love investing. And ultimately, where this business has evolved, where it's so much easier to go independent And even just three years or five years ago, if you feel that the value that you add is by your services, the independent route is a natural place to look because at the end of the day, we're all highly regulated businesses and these are highly regulated firms. The big firms are going to continue to put clients and advisors in their predisposed box of how they think that clients' assets should be run. And I think that just conflicts with a lot of advisors and their core beliefs. Yeah, I think that that's fair. And I think, you know, it's worth noting that if an advisor is considering leaving their firm because there's enough things that they're frustrated about, and then they're faced with the decision, do I want to continue to be an employee if I move, or do I want to be an independent business owner? There's an initial fear about portability. How will my existing client base respond to the notion of my leaving a big firm, the the comfortable nest, if you will, and go independent? How will I sell that? And then they probably haven't even really thought about, but if you really think about it, it's worrying about growth. How will I begin to bring in new households? How will we continue to grow the business and will we be able to do it faster or better outside the confines of the wirehouse world? So let me ask you one quickie question about that. You talked about the things that 
seem to appeal, the unique things that seem to appeal to these 18 new families, which is extraordinary. But how about the pitch to your existing client base? When you made the move, what did the pitch sound like and what was it that you think was most compelling to convince your existing clients to make the leap with you? Yeah, great question. So we wanted to approach how we address this with them in the same manner of what we had spent time learning about how the independent space works. And so we boiled it down to this. If I'm a client, the number one thing I care about are my financial assets. So what we needed to educate them on was just the role that custodians play. UBS had their own custodian. Independent world is various custodians, RAs and clients can work with. So we always want to tell them, at the end of the day, where your assets are held is the number one thing you should be concerned about. So you educate them on that. I think they got it. I was a big user of private investments at UBS, and obviously we do that even more so now. Clients would think, well, what about my private investments that are at UBS? And we would tell them that they're actually not at UBS. They're just reflected on your statements. So it just was an education process. And so many of our clients are entrepreneurs in their own right. We were very overwhelmed by the response we got about how much our clients were getting behind us. They thought it was great. They were entrepreneurs themselves. They were super thrilled for us. So that was number one. But number two is also interesting to get their perspective. A couple of them said to us, well, if I stay at UBS, I'll still get the same thing. And we had to educate them that no, like in the office I sat in, there were either eight or nine teams. Whichever team you got put with, they have a completely different way of how they'll invest your dollars. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but it's just different than what we've been doing. And so I think a lot of people have this thought process that if you're an advisor at UBS, everyone does it one way. So that was a little bit of an education process as well. Interesting. I want to pivot to an important point. So what were some of the drivers, the pushes that made you guys say it's time to leave UBS? And then secondly, what were the pulls toward independence? But let's first start with the pushes. What were the frustrations? What were the the drivers that made you say it's time to go? You know, first of all, we've both been in this business for over two decades. And so we understand where the wirehouses are coming from. But you have to understand the big wirehouses are created for scale. It doesn't matter if you're in private wealth or the regular wealth management. You really have the same investment options. And the firms need to be able to accommodate all of the advisors at those firms. And so I think Morgan Stanley has... 12, 15,000, UBS has a little bit under 7,000 that represent millions of clients. And so from an investment standpoint, let's say from an alternative standpoint or a private market standpoint, you're just going to see five, 10, $15 billion options because they have to take that across the firm's book of business. And I think that the ultimate push for us, one of the key ones, is that publicly traded warehouses are fiduciaries to one constituency, the shareholders of their stock. And we wanted to start a firm and run a firm whose business model was built around a different constituency, our clients. And so that independent route was just a very natural move. Yeah. And what I would add to it is our clients really enjoyed having uh, this full balance sheet perspective into their wealth. And the only time we really gave it to them is when we were doing estate planning. And once that happened, you couldn't really do anything with it going forward. So that was a big sticking point for me. Again, I have my own personal opinion. I know Bryn shares it, that we think there are incredible private investment opportunities that are out there. But what we had access to and what we could show our clients was really dictated by a group in New York who I know they were 
trying to do the best that they can do, but it wasn't a fit for us. It was a fit for the firm because they had a, you know, a lot of advisors that needed to have access to things, but it wasn't what we were looking for. So again, to be able to go invest money how we see fit, what's in what we think is the best interest of our clients and being able to report on not only that, but all the rest of their wealth. I just thought it was, it ended up being more, I think of a risk to stay at UBS versus go. Doug, offline, when we were preparing for this, you used a line that I loved, and I'd love it if you'd share it. And that line was that you felt like you were perpetually on the EFL train. Can you explain what you meant by that? Oh, sure. I had been there for over 15 years. And I, like a lot of advisors that joined firms in the early days, I I was paid an EFL to come join there. And then what would happen is the EFLs would continue to exist because more of our compensation would go in that direction. So it's like, hey, you earned it, but you need to be here for five years. So if I'm running the organization, I understand why they're doing that. But as an advisor, I don't love that. I think what happens is you've got to look down the road and say, okay, well, what is this going to look like for me five or 10 years from now? And I think there's a lot of advisors out there, they can't move. I mean, they're stuck. They have so much financial compensation built up and deferred comp plans, EFLs, et cetera, it's just expensive to leave. And I did not want to get stuck in that rut. So it's a real thing out there and it's a treadmill I wanted to get off of. Yeah, I love it. I think it's such a great analogy. I want to check something out with you both. So we actually published an article yesterday entitled UBS's Alpha Program, Understanding the Real Impact on All Advisors, Their Clients, Their Teams, and Their Future. And we're happy to send a link to the article to anybody who wants to read it. But generally speaking, the article was about the fact that all of the big firms, UBS included, are working hard to tie as many advisors up as they can. And one of the ways that they're doing it is by incenting advisors, whether that be earlier in their careers or just more advisors, to sign on to these retire-in-place programs. UBS is being called Alpha. And we wrote a piece talking about the fact that those retiring in place programs that all of the wirehouses have and many major firms offer are great ways for a younger generation to inherit or take on a book of business and for a senior advisor to monetize his or her life's work. The problem is that there are risks associated with those programs. And what we wrote about was those risks have to do with The more advisors are tied up, the more it shifts the balance of power from advisor to the firm. And more the balance of power shifts from advisor to firm, the less leverage the advisor force has. I know you both have a point of view on that. I'd love it if you'd share it. I'll I'll start off with this one. That balance of shift has already happened, and it's just going to continue to happen. So as Bryn pointed out earlier, UBS is a fiduciary to their shareholders first and foremost. So I think the move that they're making is a really good move from a shareholder point of view. I don't think it's a great move from an advisor point of view. I think what's just going to continue to happen in the industry is these firms are going to look for just creative ways that ultimately just push down what the ultimate compensation is to the advisor. That might work for a lot of advisors. It it wouldn't work for me. Because you just said it, Mindy. I mean, these are the firm's clients. Fortunately, we left before UBS got out of the protocol. I mean, they're all, they're saying it. These are our clients. You know, you, the advisors are just serving our clients. And if you leave, 
it's clients who are going to maybe not go with you or you're going to have a really hard time because they're our clients. So it's a reality. And it's, advisors need to have their eyes wide open as to what that is. Yeah, I do think it's also, I, I do think it's to really hit on that, this is a good business decision for the firms, right? And so that's where you have this aging demographic of advisors. And, you know, when Doug and I started in this business, it was very different. It's hard to start in this business as a young person and just to get started, build a book of business because the business has changed. People don't cold call anymore. And so I think it's, once again, this is a transition that's good for the balance sheet. And I think as a firm, you're going to continue to see this. But ultimately, you know, this is the path for younger advisors to a salary bonus versus the traditional compensation that has been around for decades. Yeah, that term salary bonus is the number one question we get asked. Do you think that we're on that path? Is that the glide path? And my answer is often, look, nobody has a crystal ball. I don't think that the firms go to salary bonus in the next year or even five. But I think if you connect the dots, the handwriting is on the wall. It certainly looks like, again, we're not picking on UBS on all major firms are looking for ways to tie advisors up more. And the more they tie advisors up, the less control advisors have. I agree with your comment about just the phrase salary and bonus. I don't think the firms will ever say it just because there's a connotation that comes to that that just doesn't sit well with advisors. But what is going to happen is compass is going to continue to go down. I think firms get really creative about saying, hey, we pay full grid. But then when you really peel the onion back, they'll take haircuts here, haircuts here, haircuts there. And all of a sudden they get to the ultimate spot. Your comp got lowered. So I think the firms are going to do whatever they can to message it as best as they can. But from an advisor standpoint, I just feel pretty convinced your compensation is going down. Yeah. All right. Let's flip the switch a second and talk then. What were the pulls to independence? How entrepreneurial were you guys? Do Were you the people that had always had a desire to be business owners or was this more of a situational thing as you looked at the landscape, you felt being independent was just the next right choice? I would say I've always had an entrepreneurial bent to just how I think and so forth. And I think the capacity to go execute on that kept diminishing. And so it wasn't that I necessarily 10 years thought about, hey, I just need to own my own company. I think we reacted to what we thought and where we see the industry going they kind of pointed us to this direction. And it has certainly become easier to become to start an independent firm than maybe it was 10 years ago. So you know, we're very open-minded to what our options were. And as you started really going down this rabbit hole of the independent space, it just became really exciting to us. So from an entrepreneurial standpoint, I can just tell you how we're both wired. We like to know how the sausage is made. So it's been a really busy two years we are such better advisors for it. I mean, there's so much more we know from a regulatory standpoint, various services we have our, offer our clients investments, et cetera. So it was worth it. So I think though, you have to have an entrepreneurial bent to go do this. And, you know, Mindy, we had talked about there's degrees of freedom when you come into the independent space. And I think maybe there are people who are slightly less entrepreneurial than others. Well, there's some places they can go, but you can still leave the big firms. <laughs> So I think that's the nice thing about the independent space is there's different channels you can go pursue depending on how much work you want to put into it. Bryn, did you want to add something? Well, I think that for advisors, 
thinking about this space to start with where Doug ended on the degrees of freedom because there are so many versions of independence, but it's really important to remember the financial industry is such a highly regulated sector and for good reason. And so there's so many belts and suspenders as it becomes to how traditionally people think of what does it mean to be entrepreneurial. But I think we think about being entrepreneurial as being just like laser focused on building a platform that brings in top technology, really high quality custodians, you know, unique investments that are tailored toward our client base rather than our client base having to fit inside a pre-populated box that was built for the masses. And so I do think a big part of the growth of the independent space is people are saying there is a better way. And we think this is the better way. And that's why, you know, it was just a natural move for us, natural move, but for advisors in general, I think that degrees of freedom is so important to understand. Yeah. And the degrees of freedom is a good way of saying it. It's right. Because 10 years ago, the independent space was largely in its infancy. So an advisor that broke away from a major firm to go independent had to jury-rig the system or figure things out or patch things together much more so than today. Today, the term service provider or platform firm or consultants to the industry are easily accessible. This whole cottage industry has been born to support the breakaway advisor, and that makes going independent much more attainable by anybody who wants it. I want to shift gears again and just talk about when you first left UBS. You started out as a hybrid RIA, my word for being both commission-based and fee-based, with fall line securities as a first step. And um, tell us a little bit about that decision to be, one, a hybrid at first, because I know now you're fee-only, and to start out with fall line and then the decision to leave fall line and form your own RIA. Sure. So the hybrid thing was important to us just because it's the world that we had been in for 20 years. We both had series sevens for quite a long time. We would manage money at UBS with both a broker's hat and an advisory hat on. So to just rip that bandaid and just all of a sudden drop your seven when you're starting this new company just didn't seem like a really great idea. So we needed to have access to a platform that could provide both. As far as Fall Line's concerned, we parted ways earlier this year. Our contract ended with Fall Line, but the thought process at the time when we joined them is, and I'm sure any of your advisors that you're talking to, Mindy, thinking about going independent is a nighttime job. <laughs> you have a daytime job of running your business wherever it is you are. And so I think it was a compelling thought to us that there's someone out there that has kind of solved this mousetrap and can make that transition to the independent space easier. That's what attracted us to that, to the idea of joining a platform when we left UBS. And then how about the decision then to leave Fallline and what's different for you having gone out with Fallline versus now being a fee-only RIA as requisite? So like I said earlier, our contract with Fallline ended, and I think one of the big decisions that we made, and it was actually a very easy one, was dropping our sevens. I don't think that's where the puck's going in the industry. I think clients like full transparency. We love the narrative of being a full fiduciary. So it just was a, it was a natural fit. And so with that, there was just not a need to have the broker-dealer piece to this. And we just had a, a desire to... We wanted our own platform. So like when we talked earlier about degrees of freedom, 
I know like Rockefeller is making a lot of news right now. And is the way I understand it, you become an employee of Rockefeller and it sounds like a pretty exciting offering, but you're still an employee. I think when you go join whatever platform it is, is sort of a middleman. You still have a middleman in between you. There's nothing wrong with that. Or you can do what we're doing where we are now fully independent. You know, we have our own platform. We control our own destiny. And those are the degrees of freedom advisors should just be aware of when they're evaluating this. Yeah. So, Bryn, a question for you as the person who serves as chief compliance officer, how much more work then is involved in running a firm like Requisite versus what you were able to outsource to Fallline? Yeah, great question. Definitely the chief compliance officer is a big role and we take it very seriously. We were actually able you know, to partner with an outside firm, Advisor Assist, which has been tremendously helpful. And I think that's an important aspect for advisors if when they're looking to go independent is how do you solve that? Because once again, um, we're a highly regulated industry. And so as long as you're following the rules of the road, um, consistently having your books and records, doing all the items consistently, and then partnering for us with a firm like Advisor Assist. It's just been so helpful to execute on that and to work, once again, outsource that to a company that has been doing this for years and years and years. Yeah. So let's pivot now to the subject of technology, which I know you both say is is very important to you and one of the game changers for you. And you mentioned using Adapar. So Eric Poirier, who's the CEO of fintech provider Adapar, shared in two episodes of this series with me how the ability for independent firms to access modern technology is a game changer. Yet many advisors tell us they're concerned about the cost of top-tier technology like Adapar. So let me ask you a couple of questions. We know you use Adapar. Tell us about that decision of benefits versus costs. Let's start with that. And what other tech platforms had you considered when you were comparing it to Adapar? Well, we considered several tech platforms. I'm, I'm sure you, you've heard of most of them, but we ultimately chose one being Adapar. And it was a pretty easy decision. I guess first and foremost, we wanted to be able to weave in private and public investments for our clients. And Adapar very much allows us to do that. That was a big thing. And I think the technology is so robust. Probably the only knock on Adapar is it's just so robust. We had to hire a consultant to help us get it to where we wanted it. But it's just a fantastic piece of technology. From a cost standpoint, yes, it's probably more expensive than some of the other providers out there. But it was an easy decision for us as far as making this investment for both our firm and our clients. So it's been a real game changer for us. And you know, I listened to both of your podcasts with Eric twice. It, just, it was really interesting to hear him speak about it. I'd say we don't have enough good things to say about Adapar. They've been a wonderful partner to work with. That's extraordinary. But we know that Adapar actually serves some of the wirehouses. For UBS private wealth advisors have access to Adapar. Sure. So what is the difference between what you're able to do using Adapar as an independent versus what a UBS advisor or a Morgan Stanley advisor can access on Adapar. Sure. When I was still at UBS, I think that they were in the pilot phase of evaluating Adapar. So I was somewhat involved with that and was excited that they were going to go down that path. So I don't know where they stand two years later, but at the time, they were only going to use Adapar for the things that were at UBS. And right there, there's the problem. So maybe you can do things like inner homes on there or what have you. But being able to advise across the entire balance sheet 
I don't believe UBS has really changed in that manner and, and, or that stance because clients are going to have other investments that were just not at UBS. So, I mean, whether we do a private investment for a client here at Requisite or they already had it on their own, we get synced up with all fund administrators to go populate all this data in Adapar on behalf of our clients. So we get to use it to the full extent Adapar was designed. And I think Eric even mentioned it on one of the podcasts that that is still a limitation of the big wirehouses is how much they can actually use it. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. And that is what he said. Brent, I want to shift to you for a second. Many will recognize your name from CNBC's halftime report. Tell us how that opportunity came about. Yeah, it's been amazing. I started in the business in 1994 and, you know, CNBC has been the channel. It's on every day at every firm all throughout the market hours. And so, you know, I'd always wanted to do the show, but her, in quotes, big firm roles, I don't think that was ever going to happen. And so after we started Requisite, I have a friend who's actually on the show and she, she had suggested to one of the producers that I would be a good addition. And so fast forward multiple Skype meetings. I'm with the CNBC team and on-air auditions. You know, they asked me to be a guest contributor. And it's really been a huge honor for both myself and Doug. You know, we get to, I get to talk about our views on the market and how we are positioned. And I think I get to bring a slightly different perspective. First, I feel like I'm the only one from Texas on the show. There's a lot of great folks from the Northeast. And so I like to be able to give that Texas perspective from our clientele and what we're seeing. And I think maybe this is just in my head, but I feel like energy comes up every time I'm on. And ultimately, I'm a big believer that the downside of technology as it relates to investors is we're in this 24-7 Twitter world. And investors are drowning in information and starving for knowledge. And I feel so honored. I get so excited that I have an opportunity to get to educate our investors live national TV on the realities of markets and how those returns are delivered. And, you know, Doug and I have lots of opinions. Um, we're in the investment business. And so we're happy to get to share those on a show like Halftime. Yeah. And how incredibly validating, not just for you, but for Requisite as a whole. You brought in 18 new families since inception. From a business development perspective, how has your role on CNBC, how has that affected business development? Ultimately, I think it's great validation because as you hit on earlier, we're a small boutique firm and to get validation, it's a very rigorous process to be on a show or a network like CNBC. And so ultimately it gives us validation about our process. And once again, for prospective clients, twice a month, they get to hear our views nationally. And so they know we think about these things where we, are, we articulate them, we live and breathe this investing world and are able to talk about it on the markets. So once again, ultimate validation of our process and philosophy to those prospective clients. Yeah, how wonderful. Let me ask you both. So what about your longer range plans for the business? Have you thought about succession? I mean, I know you're having fun. You're in major growth mode. You're a little more than two years in, but everyone thinks about succession. So what do you think it looks like? What do you think the end game for Requisite is? I'll start off taking this one. I think we spent so much time when we were still at UBS thinking about what did we want our next 20 years to look like and you know, controlling that process. So we're actually living that now we're doing it, which is fantastic. We've done the standard type of planning in the company for succession planning. If God forbid I got hit by a bus or something, 
But outside of that, we really don't think about our end game because we just couldn't imagine not doing this right now. I mean, Brent and I are both still in our 40s, so we have a long runway in front of us. So the honest answer to your question is we just don't think about an end game right now. But M&A is red hot right now in the RIA space. So even if you're not thinking about the end game, which is fair and valid, do you ever think about a day where you may look to become a buyer, an acquirer of either a smaller RIA firm or recruiting a wirehouse advisor? We're very keenly aware of what's going on in the M&A space. To your point, it's a very hot topic. So we definitely keep our eyes and ears open. What's interesting is we wake up, though, knowing what we can control. And what we can control is this firm and this platform that we've created in our organic growth. So all that being said, when we look out in the landscape out there, the thing that we notice, I'm going to preface this with Mindy, you know way more about this than we do because you're talking to people across the country. So I'm just giving you our lens. Our lens is there seems to be a lot of advisors who are leaving to go independent with not necessarily the thought process to go change the platform or the offering of the clients, but to go roll up more advisors. And we have a difficult time with the math is, is just understanding, well, how did one $200 million asset based team, how do they get merged? And they're, they're valued at X. How do all of a sudden they manage or merge with four other $200 million teams? So now you're a billion dollar firm. Has that all of a sudden become Y? And at no point in time, have we heard the word client in that. So, I guess we're just cautiously sort of just watching this and paying attention to it. We're not interested in buying a revenue stream. We're definitely interested in investing in people who want to believe in our story and and come grow with us. So I think that's the way that we look at things. And I think somewhat of a validation to that thought process that we have is just look at Focus Financial. I mean, Focus Financial stock's been cut in half in the last year. There's certainly a good barometer of a firm that's going out and rolling up other advisory firms. So that's our, my comments from a limited perspective on the industry. I do think, just to comment on that, that the benefit of adding inorganic growth to the mix, meaning going out and either acquiring a firm or recruiting an advisor, is expanding operating leverage and really accelerating the growth of the firm. But I am a firm believer like you that it shouldn't just be for the sake of adding revenue or adding assets. It should be because you're looking to enhance capabilities. You're looking to expand client service capabilities and one plus one can equal three. And oh, by the way, it expands operating leverage and oh, by the way, it expands the value of the firm, but that shouldn't be the main reason to do it. We totally agree with you. I mean, we've we've spent now over two years completely understanding our financials, the cost to run the business. And there is no question as you add more advisors, it should in theory fall more to the bottom line. But as you can also, I'm sure, appreciate When you start expanding your firm and adding more advisors, there are more headaches to come with it. And so you've got to have the right platform in place to make sure you can scale with the growth of that. So we wanted to spend the better part of two years getting things, our platform situated the way we wanted to, which we now, we sit here and we're extremely happy with it. So we can now take on new advisors. So we're very open to that idea. And the scale thing is certainly there. We just don't want to buy revenue for the sake of buying revenue. Guys, this has been 
absolutely delightful. I have one last question for each of you. I believe me, I could keep this going for hours, but I be respectful of yours and everybody else's time. But I'm going to ask each of you, and it's something I ask most advisors. I think one of the things that prospective breakaways worry about is how their life will change. They know how to be an advisor. They know how to be an advisor as an employee. And they worry that if they go independent, while it sounds great to gain more freedom and control and flexibility, they worry how their business life will change. So Bryn, let me start with you. What does a day in life of Bryn look like now? Great question. Well, first, if I'm talking to an advisor looking at this space, go back and understand the degrees of freedom that you want, right? Understand those different doors you can walk through. We're totally independent. And so my typical day predominantly depends what city I'm in. And so I travel a lot. I typically split my time between Houston, Dallas, and New York. And I really think the four or five things how I spend my day is, first of all, meeting with existing clients and talking to prospective clients. And that never changes, right? And so that's first and foremost. Second is reading. We run an investment firm. We read a lot. I'm always amazed about how much I still learn every day. And I think in our business, you know, Harry Truman had the best quote that totally applies to our business, is the only thing new in the world is the history you don't know. And as you know, in our business, some version of history tends to repeat itself over and over. And so we both spend a lot of our time reading the CCO, I'm wearing that hat. So that is every week spending high quality time making sure our books and records and that full platform is in tip top shape. So that definitely takes you know quite a bit of time. And then finally, thinking is we always are sitting there thinking and trying to understand how can we enhance the client experience. I mean, we've truly been really fortunate to work with a great group of clients. And so I do think it is important not to just spend your day being reactive, but thinking through how we can be proactive and what can we be doing better? How can we make this a better client experience? And of course, the last couple of things, I always, we always try to make time for our families, our real families, and exercise. So I really think that probably sums up how I spend my day, day week, and month. Love it. Sounds valid. How about you, Doug? So I, I went into this sort of eyes wide open and I thought the net, the first two years of running the company were going to be extremely hard. A lot of that has just to do with my personality. I just want to understand everything. So I told myself I was going to run all of our books, our financials. I want to see exactly where the money was going, how we make money, et cetera. Brent and I were involved in all of our ADVs, policies and procedures, client account forms, et cetera. So there was a lot of one-time pains that we got out of the way, but it, it made the first two years somewhat hard. But again, I expected that. Now where we sit, we're in a much better groove. I've got more balance in my life. I know my wife and daughters really appreciate it. And so to echo what Bryn said, I spent a lot of time reading as well. We, at the end of the day, we're an investment management firm. Clients come to us to give us a dollar, and hopefully that's going to be worth $2 at some point. And we spend a lot of time on the investments so there's just so many opportunities out there. We love you know, going through this, whatever pitch books they are, investment options, et cetera. We spend a lot of time reading that. And you know, we spend a lot of time just staying involved in what's going on in the industry. It is a highly regulated industry. If you're going to be an independent advisor or run an RAA, you better understand what's expected from you from the different regulatory bodies. But where we sit now, I know for Brent as well, we live and breathe this company. It's just, it's refreshing getting up every day not fighting the bureaucracy of a big firm. And so I think now that we've gotten the startup pains out of the way, we do have more balance. I'm getting more exercise like now, like Brent is. 
So we're in a good spot. That's awesome. Well, you guys are, as I said, delightful. It's been a pleasure. Your story is a great one. We're excited to watch you continue to grow and thrive. And I hope you'll be back here again someday. Anytime. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much, Mindy. Doug and Bryn offered a refreshing and relatable perspective on the benefits of independence to their business. As an investment management firm, the opportunity to offer their high net worth clients family office services, advise and report on assets across the balance sheet, the ability to shop the marketplace and offer robust access to the private markets have been total game changers for them. In our next episode, Paul Pagnotta will be on the show to talk about why, as one of the first to join Hightower, he broke away to form Pagnotto Carp, the now $4.2 billion RIA ranked number one in Virginia and number 29 in the nation on Forbes' 2019 Top Wealth Advisors list. Paul has an interesting story and an even more interesting value proposition that's clearly resonating with his clients, and I hope you'll listen in. Until then, I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for more valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to this series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 908 879-1002 or mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. Thank you for listening. I also want to thank Advisor Hub for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.